This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. It happened. Former President Donald Trump is now the first president, former or current, charged with criminal activity. Prosecutors say that he conspired to illegally influence the 2016 presidential election through hush money payments to two women who said they had sexual encounters with him. The former president called the indictment, quote, political persecution. And last night, back home at his Florida residence in Mar-a-Lago, he tore into the Manhattan D.A. Beginning with the radical left, George Soros-backed prosecutor Alvin Bragg of New York. campaigned on the fact that he would get President Trump. I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him. This is a guy campaigning. He wanted to get President Trump at any cost, and this, before he knew anything about me, didn't know a thing about me, he was campaigning. As it turns out, virtually everybody that has looked at this case, including rhinos and even hardcore Democrats, say there is no crime and that it should never have been brought. Never have been brought. Everybody. From WBHM in Birmingham, Alabama, we'll go over the charges, answer your questions, and talk about what happens next. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to get into. Stay with us. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. With thousands of options under $20,000, plus customizable financing terms and down payments as low as $0 down, it's easy to find a car that fits your lifestyle. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today. Terms and conditions may apply. Is it possible to engineer our way out of the climate crisis? Some entrepreneurs want to shoot particles into the stratosphere to combat global warming. Experts say regulations on this technology aren't keeping up. The world of solar geoengineering on the latest episode of The Sunday Story from NPR's Up First podcast. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. 
Let's get into the conversation by welcoming our guests. Joining us today, Ron Elving. He's senior editor and correspondent at NPR. Ron, welcome back. Jen, it's good to be with you, and please say hi to my friends there at BHM. You bet. Also with us, Andrea Bernstein, a journalist covering democracy for ProPublica and Trump legal matters for NPR. She co-hosts the Will Be Wild and Trump Inc. podcasts, and she's also the author of American Oligarchs, The Kushners, The Trumps, and The Marriage of Money and Power. Andrea, thanks for making time for us today. Thanks for having me. Well, we will certainly get to the list of charges facing the former president, but Andrea, you were at the courthouse. Give us a sense of what the courtroom was like yesterday. So this is a courtroom that I sat in many, many, many days during the criminal proceedings of Donald Trump's former chief financial officer and his company. Uh, His former chief financial officer ultimately pleaded guilty in that case. He is now uh, serving jail time. And uh, the former president's company last year was convicted of multiple felonies, multiple counts of tax fraud. So I've been in the courtroom. I've seen the court officers. I've seen the uh, clerks. I've seen the judge. And in some ways, it felt completely normal and familiar. And in other ways, there was nothing normal or familiar about it. To start with, the security was incredibly complicated to get into the courtroom. Once inside, there were rows of court officers lining the center aisles and all around. There were Secret Service uh, agents posted in the corners. And then at about 2.30 p.m., the door opens and in walks the former president of the United States uh, with kind of a heavy step, looking quite grim, uh, and proceeds to sit down at the defense table. And, And here is a man of many words, as we all know, who said, by my count, five of them yesterday in the court proceeding. Two of them were not guilty. And the other three words were yes in response to questions about whether he understood uh aspects of the criminal procedure. And then the hearing unfolded in which, you know, we learned for the first time the nature of these 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. There was an extensive discussion after that about the former president's comments on social media. And and he was, in effect, admonished by the judge and told uh, his lawyers were told to instruct their, their client not to say anything that could incite violence or civil unrest or undermine the rule of law. But the judge did not impose a gag order. He said he would not, especially given that Donald Trump is running for president again uh, and has First Amendment rights. Uh, But uh, there's another but, because Donald Trump's legal team and the DA's office is negotiating how he, the normal first step in a criminal process is that the defendant gets to look at the evidence, gets to look at the grand jury notes, gets to look at witness statements, and the prosecution is concerned, as they articulated yesterday, that the former president may put some of this out on social media, may use it to disparage people, uh, to bully people, and they are asking the judge to say that he is not allowed to do that. He's not allowed to talk about this pre-trial exchange of documents, which is known as discovery, that he can't even look at documents outside of the presence of his lawyers or take them with him or post them on social media, and that if he did so, he would be held in contempt of court. So Mm -hmm. for the first time, we are talking about some kind of limitation on how Donald Trump can, can treat evidence in this case and how he can talk about it. And that is something that is uncharted 
<laughs> you okay. know, that word is overused, but really we are, we are entering a presidential uh, campaign. It's, it's going into high gear as we speak. And we are talking about this legal process, setting court dates, setting a possible trial. Well, we actually got this question from Mark in Texas about the court dates. I do not even remotely understand why we have to wait until December. The prosecution uh, has been, the DA has taken a long time to put all their documents together. The defense obviously knows what's going on. Why do we have to wait until the possibility of even a year from now in spring? None of this even remotely for a timeline makes sense why we have to wait that long. Mark, thanks for that question. Ron, I'll come to you about the timing. Um, There was this initial sort of loose date set for some time in December. Uh, Trump's lawyers are pushing for spring. What do we know about the timing and why there's such a well, what reads as, at least as a delay between the indictment and when the trial would actually start? My, my experience is that this takes a good deal of time, even under more normal circumstances, that there is usually a lag and that while these may be bread and butter cases for the Manhattan DA, uh, they are bread and butter cases that take a great deal of discovery and a great deal of sharing of evidence back and forth between the two sides. And, of course, there is a docket of other cases waiting to be handled in the court. So anyone who's gotten involved in civil suits, uh, criminal suits are a little bit different, but anyone who's gotten involved in either uh, knows that sometimes there is a remarkable lag of time between when someone is arrested or when someone is uh, sued and when that is actually resolved. And in this case, we can count on former President Trump's lawyers at least this appears to be the strategy, to take every opportunity they can to delay the matter and push it into next year. Well, Andrea, and the language of these charges is is vital to understand because it's more than just paying off Stormy Daniels. Can you just briefly explain that for us? Yes. Um, Just to to add to what Ron just said about the the sort of New York law that applies here, there is 45 days for the prosecution to turn over this discovery material to the defense, after which the defense would typically write and will in this case uh, a motion to dismiss and to dismiss, to suppress evidence and you know other uh, possible legal av- avenues they have and then the prosecution has time to d- respond and then the judge has a time to rule there's definitely some extra time padded into this particular case the pro- the defense said we have not seen this indictment until they said 40 minutes ago they said 30 minutes ago uh, they the prosecution asked for a trial date January 2024, which would be aggressive for a New York uh, white-collar case. The, the defense asked for more time. So that is sort of the, the kind of um, specific New York law that applies here. So it seems like a long time, but to give the defendants their due process rights, they are allowed to present various challenges. And that's largely what is caused here. Now, Andrea, specific to the language of these charges, because, again, people are focused on the payment to Stormy Daniels, the adult film star, but it, it goes beyond that. You know, what we learned yesterday was quite interesting because what the DA said through his um, charging documents, through the indictment and statement of facts and at a press conference, was that the conspiracy to pay the money to Stormy Daniels was a crime, allegedly, because it, A, uh, is illegal in New York to conspire to undermine an election, B, because it exceeds federal campaign limits, and C, because... Uh, according to the DA, there was a plan to report this money falsely as income, when in fact it was reimbursement for a hush money payment. 
Under New York law, when you file a false business record in order to conceal another crime, that's a felony. And according to the DA, this was done in 34 separate business records. Therefore, there are 34 counts. So to make it a felony, it has to be to cover up another crime, which was in this case, according to the DA, an attempt to undermine the 2016 election, which, of course, Trump won. We got this email question from Will, who says, given that Michael Cohen was convicted and served prison time for his actions on behalf of Trump, is there a reasonable scenario in which Trump is innocent of those same charges? Um, And just as a reminder, uh, Michael Cohen served a little over a year in prison for um, tax evasion and lying to Congress, among other charges. Ron, I'll turn to you. How are Trump's charges different? Trump's charges are different because he had a different role in these transactions and because uh, he has not been charged with, for example, lying to Congress. So it's a different set of charges. And even if uh, even if uh, two people are accused of the same crime, uh, it's up to a jury to decide which of them or, or whether or not either of them is actually guilty. So that uh, that is something to be determined ultimately by a jury. We also got this question from Steve who asks, are prosecutors working around the normal statute of limitations in this case? Andrea? So in New York, uh, if a uh, defendant does not live in New York, the clock stops. And in addition, the former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, uh, stopped what is called the tolling of uh, the statute of limitations during COVID. So the prosecution is arguing that, no, it does not apply. Now, is it possible the defense will raise that in upcoming legal arguments? It's possible. Uh, but uh, that is, according to the DA, why they believe it does not apply in this case. We got this question from Kevin in Delaware about the 34 charges and how prosecutors should handle them. If we can put our objective hats on, and in light of the person that you have have as one of your guests, she pointed out three different um, areas, A, B, and C. In light of all of that, if we put our objective hats on, why shouldn't the president be charged for these crimes? Uh, Kevin, thanks for that question. And Andrea, I'll come to you first. What are the arguments Trump's attorneys, at least, are making about why he shouldn't be charged in this case? So one of the things that they've said is that it is a sort of novel legal theory. And that is true and not true. Falsifying business records is a routine charge in New York white-collar cases. Uh, If you uh, fudge your books to hide from the fact that you've committed a crime, you can get prosecuted in New York. What is less tested is the idea that uh, violating campaign finance law is is the basis for this, and that conspiring to undermine an election is the basis for this. But the district attorney articulated strongly uh, in his remarks after the uh, arraignment yesterday that he felt that you should not be able to conspire to undermine an election, if indeed that's what is proven that it occurred here. And if you did that and you uh, created records to hide the fact that you did that, that's a crime in New York. And it doesn't matter if you're an ex-president or anybody else. If you do this, according to him, you should be subject to the rule of law in New York. Ron, anything to add? Yes, I believe that there's also an issue here with the election in question not being a state election, that it's a federal election for president in 2016. And that is what Donald Trump was, uh, according to the indictment, uh, trying to influence or prevent an influence on it by hushing up uh, Stormy Daniels. 
So presumably any election would count, but oftentimes we have seen a distinction made in court and in various uh, legal proceedings uh, between federal and state elections and whether or not you can you know, essentially charge under state law for a violation that has to do with an election that is a federal election. But in this case, they're arguing – Bragg is, is arguing that because the business occurred in New York state, then it falls under their jurisdiction? That it is clearly a New York crime in the sense that it all – essentially all of this takes place in New York. But the election that is being referenced is a federal election, not a state election. So th- that is the sort of thing that will be argued out in court and the determination will have to be made. But that is an argument that will go on between both sides and it's certainly one of the things that will be raised. Well, the statement of facts that accompanies District Attorney Alvin Bragg's 16-page indictment says that three people were paid off as part of a, quote, catch-and-kill scheme. The plan enlisted the help of Trump fixer and former attorney Michael Cohen, as we've mentioned, American Media Inc., the then-publisher of the National Enquirer. Andrea, who are the other people prosecutors say were paid off, and and why does it matter? So one was uh, a woman who uh, had been a a Playboy bunny, Karen McDougal. She was, according to the Statement of Facts and other reporting, uh, paid a catch-and-kill fee by the owners of the National Enquirer not to tell her story about an alleged affair. The other was a doorman at at Trump Tower who said he had information about an out-of-wedlock child. Now, this was found out. Uh, not to be true, but he still received a sum of money. I think one of the most interesting things to me in the statement of facts was that Donald Trump's initial plan with regards to Stormy Daniels was to never pay her, to say that he was going to pay her, then after the election not pay her, at which point, according to the statement of facts issued by the DA, uh, it wouldn't matter anyway if Trump was elected. So this was, to me, quite a wrinkle that I had not understood before, which was that the plan was never, in fact, to pay Stormy Daniels, but only after the election did they decide that, or I guess he decided, that that would be in his interest, and according to these documents, and uh, so did uh, sort of put into effect this elaborate scheme uh, in which he sort of allegedly tried to cover it up. One more interesting note, uh, when I was working on the Trump Inc. podcast, we explored the fact that the then-sitting president of the United States had not separated himself from his business. And as I read these charging documents, it struck me that if he had indeed separated himself from his business, he might not be dealing with this matter now because it had everything to do with his business being used while he was president to cover up an alleged crime that he had committed in order to become president, which is uh, quite a historical turn here. That's Andrea Bernstein. She covers democracy for ProPublica. She's also co-host of the Will Be Wild podcast and longtime NPR contributor. Andrea, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. And let's bring one more voice into the conversation. We've got Jeffrey Engel. He's founding director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. Jeffrey, welcome back. Hi, good to talk to you again. We got this question from Lisa in Michigan. I haven't heard any discussion of any bail that was set at the arraignment. And of course, we all know who he is and he's not going to run away maybe. But I'm just wondering, was there any discussion of bail and what were the terms um, at the arraignment? Thanks for that question, Lisa. Ron, what can you tell us? There was a change in New York law in 2020 uh, by which cash bail was no longer required of nonviolent 
charges. So uh, that is up to the discretion of the judge, but but they, they, that is that is now across the board. So it was not a, necessarily a, a special uh, sort of arrangement made just for Donald Trump. He is, of course, infinitely recognizable. So having him having him out on his own recognizance is. Uh, is a pretty safe bet, but uh, but they have changed the law in general just since 2020, and uh, so that is also a factor. We got this email question from Kyle, who wants to know, is it possible that Trump could be disqualified from being elected president? Jeffrey, what effect, if any, does this have on Trump's presidential possibilities? You know, from my reading, it doesn't have any effect whatsoever, except in the in the realm of politics. The Constitution is very clear that a president who is impeached and convicted, whether in office or after office, is thereafter barred from holding federal office. So had Trump been convicted in either of his previous impeachment trials, he would be barred from holding federal office. But there's nothing in the Constitution to bar someone from being a, a criminal and, uh, and being in jail, even. In fact, we've had occasions in the Past, at least one famous one uh, in 1920 when Eugene Debs, a socialist candidate, actually ran for president from his prison cell. So there is nothing to that this legal proceeding can do to bar or to keep Donald Trump from becoming president. Let's go to this question we got from Josh in North Carolina. He has a question about the politics around all of this. Um, I was wondering if he did get convicted of this felony during this primary uh, what would that effect be on his, the candidacy? Josh, thanks for your question. I mean, Jeff, when you when you read presidential history, can you just give us a sense of the precedent-setting nature of this? This is the first time a current or former president has been criminally charged. It, it is, and I have to say that we keep on exploring and re-exploring the nature of the term unprecedented when it comes to Donald Trump. You know, I like to say that in graduate school, we were all taught in American history never to use the term unprecedented because usually it meant that you weren't looking hard enough. There was always something you could find to shed some light on the, on the current events or, or on another event. Uh, we are hard-pressed to find one for Donald Trump at this point. We have had previous presidents uh, who, of course, have run afoul of the law, but never one who has gotten this far down the road to actually be indicted. I mean, the closest that we have, well, I mean, the comical closest that we have, of course, is President Grant was actually pulled over for speeding in his carriage uh, and actually paid a fine for that uh, while he was president. Uh, We also, of course, have the case of Richard Nixon, who I think undoubtedly would have faced criminal charges had he not been pardoned by President Ford. And I think the closest analogy that we have, honestly, is President Clinton, who, of course, was not convicted, but rather reached a plea deal to with prosecutors to uh, essentially pay a fine and to lose his law license for five years, if I recall correctly, uh, at the end of his uh, sex scandal uh, during his time in office. Of course, not for the sexual part, but rather for lying under oath. So I think that's the closest analogy that we have, the closest historical example that we have of a president running so far afoul of the law that they had to actually pay consequences, and in his, in Clinton's case, admit guilt. Ron, Andrea touched on this. Uh, the judge in this case didn't place a gag order on the former president, but there are restrictions on what he can and cannot say, especially on social media. Trump's language is incendiary. He refers to Bragg, who is black, as an animal and, and calls the office Soros-funded, which is an anti-Semitic reference to Jewish money. But as we've already laid out, he's currently campaigning for a second term in the White House. What do these limitations mean for what Trump can and cannot say publicly? 
If you watched his speech from Mar-a-Lago last night, it's very hard to believe that he considers himself to be limited in what he can say. Uh, he continues to state inaccuracies about all of these people and about the process as it has gone forward and about his own role. And that is, that is going to be difficult to restrain. I mean, we have seen Donald Trump over a number of years now operating in this extraordinarily freewheeling way, uh, fact-free oftentimes, seemingly in a part of a different reality in which he imagines how he would like things to be and then describes them as if that were reality. So we will see how he is restrained here, but his last salvo on social media, uh, Truth Social, his, his own social media, uh, was, was extraordinary and vituperative and went on and on and on. And much of it was all caps, the online equivalent of shouting or screaming. And uh, this was flaming all of the people we've talked about, the judge and the district attorney and so forth. And that would seem to be clearly violative. And we will see if that kind of behavior at least is restrained. Joseph in Long Island has this question about the jury selection process. I'm really curious as to the possibility of selecting an impartial jury. Uh, everybody knows who Trump is. Um, everybody has an opinion. How are you going to find people that will give a true impartial view of whether or not he's committed a crime? Thank you. Joseph, great question. Thanks, Ron. <laughs> what do you think? It's going to be tough. There's no question about it. Uh, I was called as part of a jury panel or that is, you know, a group of prospective jurors in federal court for Roger Stone a few years ago when he was uh, being prosecuted. And uh, they called in 120 people to get a jury of 12. So it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty obvious they were expecting a lot of us to be excused. They gave us a long questionnaire about everything that we might know or not know and what associations we might have with any campaigns, et cetera, et cetera. The first question of which was, do you know anyone in the news media? So I could tell I wasn't going to be around for very long. Uh, you're going to have a group of people in New York, in Manhattan specifically, uh, who obviously know who Donald Trump is, who obviously have been exposed to a lot of information about Donald Trump, whether or not they are expert in all of these uh, charges and all of the history of the law there is another question. So it'll take a lot of time. It'll take a lot of wrangling back and forth. The voir dire process where the lawyers have the right to challenge various jurors uh, is probably going to be quite dramatic in and of itself. But people can get this done. It has been done in other cases. It has been done in other incendiary cases. And when we get there, and it may be a year from now or later, when and if we get there, they will find a way to get a jury. And just one more quick question before we go to break. Uh, Travis emailed, with regards to the appeal process in this case and perhaps the Georgia case, does the appeals process end at the respective state Supreme Court or is there potential appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court? Ron, what can you tell us there? I'm going to hazard the guess, and I am not a lawyer, but I'm going to hazard the guess that it is hard to imagine that there will not be appeals that would reach the U.S. Supreme Court before all this is over. We're discussing the indictment of former President Donald Trump. We'll answer more of your questions after the break. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. 
Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Let's get back to the conversation with this question from Doug in Orlando. So I worked on the John Edwards campaign in 2008, and of course we know that John Edwards had a very similar situation to Donald Trump in which he paid off a mistress using uh, secret funds that, that ran through his campaign and so on. And I w- was hoping your guests could comp- do the, a comparison of the similarities and the differences in these two cases. I think it's one of the closest precedents to the Trump case because there are uh, he was a two-time presidential candidate and the United States senator. Doug, thank you for that question. Now, analysts, as, as we just heard there from Doug, say Trump's case bears some similarities to the prosecution of John Edwards. He was a United States senator, a Democrat from North Carolina, and he was charged in 2011 with federal campaign finance violations. He accepted payments to help cover up an affair during his presidential run in 2008. Ron, similarities and differences here? There was a photographer or actually a videographer who had been covering John Edwards' political career for a period of time. He had an affair with her, fathered a child with her. And at the time of uh, the trial, some years later, uh, on charges that were similar here, that that, uh, John Edwards' wife was also terminally ill. And he had a number of reasons for wanting to make these payments other than other than uh, covering up for the sake of his presidential ambitions. Now, by the time that all of this got anywhere near court, uh, John Edwards was no longer in the picture as, uh, as a presidential candidate. He was primarily one in 2004. He was on the ticket as the vice presidential candidate in 2004. Uh, was, was not a factor very deep into the 2008 a contest which wound up being primarily between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, but he had been a candidate again. And so there are some similarities with regard to being a presidential candidate, uh, being concerned about the effect that such kind uh, such revelations would have. And also, uh, we're going to hear the defense, I think, from the Trump people that he was merely trying to spare his family, loved ones, uh, the information about Stormy Daniels. Didn't want that released because he didn't want his wife to know. Uh, very interesting to look at uh, these suggestions that he did not intend to pay her after the election. Uh, One possible explanation for that was that he didn't expect to win. Mm -hmm. And if he didn't expect to win and he was finished as a political figure, he didn't expect to pay her. That's uh, one of the possibilities of the reading of the facts in this case. So there are some real differences between the relationships involved here with John Edwards and the continued maintenance of the support for uh, the woman in that case and for her child. So there are legal similarities, but the facts of the case are vastly different. And just to be clear, John Edwards was um, not convicted, but the jury acquitted him of one charge, but they were deadlocked on five other 
charges, and the Department of Justice just decided not to retry Edwards. We got this uh, email from Earl who says, there's been much media coverage regarding Trump's alleged boost in GOP polls as a result of the New York indictment. I'm not so sure. The best he could do in New York was Marjorie Taylor Greene and George Santos. What are you seeing there, Ron, about what's happened politically for Trump since the indictment? There's no question that there are numbers out there in polling that show that Trump has gotten a big boost, a big surge of support, particularly vis-a-vis his main rival, theoretically, because, well, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, has not declared for president, and yet people are regarding him as the main rival, and he has done the best in the polls against Trump. There's been a big surge in Trump's advantage, which already existed over Ron DeSantis. And DeSantis hasn't known quite how to deal with this. Other Republican leaders don't know quite how to deal with this. Obviously, they would rather it weren't happening. But they have rallied around him, called it a witch hunt, called it uh, political persecution or prosecution. And, uh, and that is the safe place to be right now because much of the Republican Party, if not all of the Republican Party, is rallying around him, at least in the sense that when they're asked for a comment by a news person or when they are asked for their view by a pollster, they are saying, oh, yeah, uh, we're with Trump. We're, we're his people and we support him and we, we share his sense of outrage. And, and perhaps most of them do. I have my I have my questions about how this is going to play out over a long period of time, especially if there are charges from Georgia, charges from the federal cases, the Mar-a-Lago documents, the January 6th involvement. If we have an, a long year of hearing charge after charge and evidence after evidence of Donald Trump committing crimes uh, of various kinds in various jurisdictions under various sets of law, uh, is that really going to continue to boost his standing with the voters? We'll have to see. Well, and I just want to briefly mention the money at play here. Shortly after Trump was arrested, an email was sent from the official Trump store advertising this white T-shirt. It had a fake mug shot of the former president and the words, not guilty. The email also solicited readers to donate $47 to his campaign. On Monday, his senior advisor, Jason Miller, tweeted that Trump had raised $7 million since the indictment. So far, how is the political campaign, Trump's political campaign, using the indictment to appeal to his base? They're using it quite directly. They know that these people feel a sense of their own persecution. And and Trump is very good at this, of saying, if they can come after me, they can come after you. And you know they're going to. And if, if a powerful person such as myself can be persecuted in this way by... The so-called authorities, and he, he generally speaking does not grant them uh, the authority of their offices, if they can do that to me, they can do it to you. And that has been a very large part of his connection to the grievances felt by many Americans who are the people who have been voting for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020 and in terms of polling even now. Jeffrey, I know you've probably been asked this a lot as a presidential historian, but did the founders of this country foresee this ever happening with the president? Did they prepare for this? They did, in fact, and I think it speaks directly to to Ron's last point, which is that they were particularly concerned with uh, what a politician's sense of public responsibility and virtue would appear like to voters, which is to say uh, there's one way to read this as Donald Trump saying, you know, they can come for me, they can come for anyone. There's a positive way to read that same sentence, which is to say that no man is above the law. If they can come for a former president, then the law really is supreme. And that was really the concern 
for the founders. In fact, they actually had an explicit discussion in the midst of their discussion over impeachment, over what to do with a president who had attained office after lying about their record, after fabricating some of their record, after you know concealing something. And to be honest, it was actually a relatively short discussion. They said the solution should be one of two things. Either impeachment, of course you should impeach such a person if they were in office. Uh, and secondly, they expected the voters to recognize that that demonstrated a lack of virtue, that no person who had been found to have committed a, a concealment in order to get office the first time, the founders believed would ever possibly be elected again by the voters. And that there's a re- repeated sense uh, that the drumbeat of negative blows against a politician's virtue, by virtue they defined it, and that was really a key characteristic for a president, they defined it as someone who was willing to put the public's interest ahead of their own. Anyone who took repeated blows to their reputation and virtue would simply have made themselves uh, unelectable. In fact, Alexander Hamilton, uh, of course, we're all supposed to reference Alexander Hamilton these days, but Alexander Alexander Hamilton made a very clear point to say that impeachment itself would be such a stain upon the reputation of a politician that no person impeached would ever dream of even trying to run again. So they were well aware of these issues. They did not discuss them in terms of adult film stars, of course, but they certainly did discuss them in terms of what a politician might do to conceal his record in order to make himself more appealable, uh, appealing to voters. Well, Jeffrey, they also didn't have these discussions in a time of social media and the rampant spread of mis- and disinformation. So how do we we read or process their plans and and how well-prepared they were for something they they really couldn't predict? They couldn't predict this time. Oh, I think that's a great point. And, and, and I'm far from a person who would suggest that we need to take everything that they said as some kind of a biblical statement, as some kind of statement from on high. And we should also remember, of course, that when we're talking about the architects of the Constitution or the founders, they were as complex a generation as we are. That There really are very few things that you can confidently say with 100% certainty that every one of them agreed upon something. But they were all in agreement about the question of virtue. But your point about social media, I think, is is really quite important. I think there's actually been a real shift in American history since the presidency of George H.W. Bush, uh, which is that because of media, in part because of media, and also because of heightened partisanship, frankly, from both sides of the aisle, we've seen a real shift, I think, in how people think about the president. That is to say, those who disagree with the president, those who find the president in their previous party, in previous generations, they largely disagreed, but you know, kept it somewhat respectable. Um, you know, obviously, Abraham Lincoln had his haters. Franklin Roosevelt certainly had his haters. But the word hate itself was not something that you would apply to those presidents from their detractors. I think when we get to Bill Clinton and, frankly, every president since, we've seen that there's a more of a visceral, emotional reaction from voters who dislike the president on the other side of the aisle. And I think that that's a real shift and perhaps one reason why we're seeing such an ongoing um, 
display of fighting over the, what this what this question means of a president, former president indicted, is that people have, of course, already determined, to a caller's earlier point, largely already determined what they think of the president. And it's not that they disagree with a former president. It's not that they don't like their policies. It's that they viscerally hate them. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunately the dynamic I think we've been in for the last generation and a half. Let's go to this question from Stewart, who says, it's difficult to convince a jury of criminal intent. Does the panel believe this may be an issue during this trial? Ron, briefly? Yes, it will be an issue. You will have to convince the jury that Donald Trump meant to do all the things he's being accused of doing uh, and had the intention that he is that is being imputed to him by these charges. And his attorneys will be uh, working very hard and earning very large amounts of money trying to undercut that notion. We got this question from Mary in New York. She says, I was wondering if the next president, be it Trump or anyone else, could pardon Trump's cases if they're once in play. And that would be federal and New York state. Mary, thanks for that question. Uh, Ron, what can you tell us? Can Trump be preemptively pardoned if these cases are still in motion? When he was president, he said, I have the absolute right to pardon myself. Uh, I won't need to because I haven't done anything wrong, but I have that absolute right. Uh, There is no necessary reason to believe that. Uh, The pardon power, as as I'm sure Professor Engel can can elucidate, was was very much discussed at at the Constitutional Convention. It was one of the last things I believe that they talked about. And and they, I believe, did not contemplate it being applied by a president to himself. But we're going to have an argument about that if Donald Trump is ever president again. Jeffrey, your thoughts? Yes. In fact, they, they actually didn't discuss a president pardoning themselves, but they discussed a president who pardoned his associates and someone who w- w- conspired with them in a, cr- in a crime. And of course, that was something that they, they immediately re- rejected and, and thought should be um, something that would keep somebody from being president going forward. So there is no doubt whatsoever that the president can't, you know, just walk himself out of this problem. And I think one thing that we need to remember from a historical perspective is that we are rethinking what happened with President Nixon and Gerald Ford Mm -hmm. in this regard. That is to say, for a generation, if not more, the standard retelling of Gerald Ford's decision to pardon Richard Nixon was that it allowed the nation to heal more quickly. It allowed the nation to go uh, more quickly past Watergate and, put them, and turn towards the future. Historians are rethinking this question and saying that, you know, one of the problems with that is that it, it, it never allowed the infection to be cured. It never allowed all the air and, and, and oxygen to and sunlight to get to the problems of Watergate and therefore didn't really teach the lesson to future presidents or future Americans that there will actually be consequences for their crimes, especially for the most powerful. So we're really re- rethinking the question of whether or not a pardon itself is something that is useful, not just for the person involved, but rather for the nation as a whole. I'd love to hear from both of you. How do you think Trump's indictment will change the perception of the American presidency? Ron, I'll turn to you first. It doesn't help the concept of the American presidency to see it treated in this fashion uh, as, as a kind of of area of contention between the parties as to whether or not the president is in some sense or another a criminal. Uh, that that does not help the image of an office that we have liked to think, and that's you know perhaps a national delusion, but we have liked to think was in some sense or another at some point or another representative of the country as a whole. Jeffrey, your thoughts? 
You know, I'm actually going to go glass half full on this one and say that, you know, this actually doesn't obviously help the institution of the presidency, but this helps American institutions writ large. That is to say, we are a nation of laws, and it sounds hokey, but it's also true. And we are a nation that has said since the beginning that no person is above the law. And if they can put a president on trial, well, that means that we are, in fact, valuing the law more than any individual. So I'm bullish on this process as a, on the long, long term. That's Jeffrey Engel. He's founding director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. Also with us today, Ron Elving, senior editor and correspondent at NPR. Ron Jeffrey, thank you. And thanks to everyone who called in or wrote in with questions today. We appreciate it. Today's producers were Maya Garg, Arfi Getty, Chris Remington, and Bruce Romer helped us with the phones. Special thanks to our friends here at WBHM in Birmingham, Alabama, for hosting us this week. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at betterhelp.com NPR to get 10% off your first month. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR.